guys and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Decks, a event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode, Venters, is yet another Future Funk producer. Don't worry, I'll probably be taking a break from interviewing Future Funk producers for a while after this. His name is Jake, or he's otherwise known Strawberry Station. Jake is originally from Leicester, but has moved to Canada to start a new life for himself and explore new opportunities. Taking on new challenges, panic attacks, anxiety, imposter syndrome, loneliness, and the kindness of strangers is all on the menu for this episode. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the decks with Strawberry Station. Jake, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. I feel like it's taken us five years to get this sorted out, even though the pod's only been going for a year. But I feel like you were probably one of the first people I asked about the pod as well. Given the time difference between the UK and Canada, we are doing this in an afternoon instead of a morning like I usually do on a weekend. First off, how are you, bro? Because we are finally here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thank you for finally having me on. It's a pleasure to be part of Behind the Decks because, yeah, as you said, we've been talking for a long time now and, yeah, it feels like the planets are finally aligned. You finally caught me on a day off work. I finally caught you on a day off work and here we are. Excellent. We have got loads to crack on with in this pod, mate. Let's just get started. Let's start at the beginning, mate, with your journey as Strawberry Station. I ask all my guests this question first, though. So why don't you tell the listeners about how your love affair with music began, maybe some of your favourite records growing up, music idols and inspirations, and then how you first got into producing. Man, where to begin? To start with, growing up, I was feeding off of kind of the tastes of my parents, I guess, especially my mum. She had a pretty cool record collection growing up. She was always growing up into like disco and UK punk, you know, all the stuff like the Sex Pistols, Clash, that sort of thing. From there, it kind of ballooned. I was getting into music around the time that, you know, the music I had growing up was like pop punk and stuff. So things like Green Day, Blink 182, I was one of those kids. But on top of that, I always had like this love affair with kind of classic rock I guess I could just say classic rock is kind of a casual you know I was into bands like Kiss they were the first band I ever saw live and uh, anything from the past basically I've always said I'd live in the past and uh, it's always been the same growing up so you'd be more likely to catch me listening into like the Beatles or the Clash at school than whatever was in the charts at the time But I would say that at the same time, I do have a fond memory of like the French house stuff that was in the charts at the time, you know, things like Stardust, Mojo, Def Punk, that sort of thing. And while it was never something that I particularly listened to, it's probably always there in the back of my mind, you know, that I liked this kind of house dance disco music. And uh, there's plenty to cover, but um, (laughs) it sowed the seeds for sure. My next question is an obvious one. Where on earth did you pluck the name Strawberry Station from and what was the inspiration behind it? (laughs) the story it's not as amazing as it sounds I was literally starting out like as a vaporwave producer at the time and I decided I needed a name and I was just brainstorming things and decided well strawberries are my favorite fruit 
and if there was one kind of guilty pleasure I'd have, it's trains. So you could often catch me at the station watching trains go by. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's literally it. It's just strawberry and trains. That's an amazing story and not one I was actually expecting when it comes to the origins of the name. Yeah, I don't, I don't come across as your average train spotter, to be fair. So far, I've had Future Funk producers Melanade and Snowdream, as well as Mr. Wax, who used to dabble in Future Funk. For any listeners who are just tuning into this pod and don't know what it is, tell them about this weird and wacky internet music genre that I describe as disco on speed. <laughs> That's a very good explanation, to be fair. So it's one of those things that kind of spawned from Vaporwave, and I became aware of it when I started dabbling in Vaporwave, and I was hanging out with friends in Leicester at the time. And <laughs> yeah, it's heavily sampled, a lot of kind of like disco, funk, city pop, so Japanese 80s pop samples and stuff. And it all ties into this kind of whole nostalgic aesthetic that you get. Well, I'm not going to go as far as to say an anime aesthetic because that would be doing a disservice to the various other branches that people like to do. But yeah, it's just a party in a nutshell, really. It's all big bangers and stuff that you can play in a club. It caught me straight away. And as you got into the scene, who were some of your idols and inspirations? Was it as simple as the likes of Young Bay and St. Pepsi, or were they a bit more niche? Oh, St. Pepsi, definitely. The first Future Funk song I ever heard was when I was in one of those random sessions with my friends drinking in Leicester, and someone put St. Pepsi, Cherry Pepsi on the TV, on the little YouTube thing that was rolling. I was just sat back in my chair, and then I heard that, I just hear that first, like, bass line where the baseball just goes bam and just when that baseball comes out i just leant up in my chair i was like hold on what's this <laughs> this is it was one of those like paradigm shift moments in your life where you know something's just clicked and it's like oh okay i've got to check this out now early days it's sad really because we're talking on the day that the channel is supposedly closing down because of copyright strikes but my early days i spent dabbling in artsy music and listening to all the stuff on there Stuff like Aritus, Agrume, Conscious Thoughts, Fiber, all those kind of classic future funks. A lot of them are still around, but you know, I was listening to kind of those those classic ones and just thinking, yeah, this is cool. I want to do this too. All the future funk producers I've interviewed have said how much joy and support they've received from the scene when they first entered it and as they've established themselves. Do you share their sentiments of this accepting community and how has it helped your mental health, Jake? You mentioned that music and the scene helped you out of a really low point in 2016 and 2017 is that right yeah 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 so like at the time that I discovered it I was in a bit of a tough spot I'd been for a breakup and I'd just got this nine-to-five job which at the time I got it I was like yes this is hype I'm so happy to finally have myself set you know I've got the girl I've got the job just got the car <laughs> and now we're gonna get the house get the family all that kind of thing and the fact that I'm sat here right now in Canada talking to you <laughs> shows that that didn't quite pan out but yeah I was pretty bummed out through that whole 2016-17 thing it was a hell of a come down because it was the year that Leicester won the league so <laughs> but yeah I discovered it probably early mid 2017 was when I was really introduced to it and started looking into it myself and yeah you know the community was great I loved it it really felt like this community that I belonged to you know talking to some of the folks in the scene early doors and you mentioned Mr Wax already he was one of the first people 
that I ever like reached out to on the Future Funk subreddit for advice. He taught me how to side chain, which is like, oh god, it's like <laughs> if you don't know how to side chain, just don't bother. <laughs> Very basic stuff. I was starting from absolute zero, but yeah, you know, the guys and girls that I met in the UK scene in particular been amazing to me and you know they're some of my closest friends nowadays so folks like Mr Wax and I met Jelly Bonbon as well he was the first person to teach me how to DJ when I met him up in Leeds and we went to Pirate Studios to do like some sessions in advance of Group Horizons Melanade at Groove Horizons as well, Conscious Thoughts, Android Apartment as well. Alberto is an amazing guy, you know, he's the most Italian guy in the world. He's just been airlifted and dropped in the middle of London, and it's like having a little bit of Italy around you at all times. It's such a happy-go-lucky guy, I love him to bits. Yeah, they're great, you know, they've been nothing but good to me, and as I've grown, I've met more people in the scene, and, you know, I've got friends here in Canada now that I met through the internet and Vaporwave and Future Funk and stuff. Folks like Indie Advent, who was a big part of Private Suite magazine, which I was involved in. He's like one of my buddies here in Toronto now. And Panic Pop as well, Wayne, very cool guy. The family keeps growing almost. Even in the world circumstances, you know, I've been able to meet new people from the stuff that I've done with music. And ultimately, that's what I always wanted to do with this, was have an opportunity to travel and meet new people. Here I am sat in Canada talking to you, partially because of it. And what impact does producing or DJing have on your mental health, Jake? Is it a distraction, something cathartic when you're feeling down, or perhaps an escapism for when you need to ride out those negative periods of your mental health? The best way I'll describe it at the moment, the way I feel about it at the moment, is that it's a bit of a double-edged sword, because... While I genuinely enjoy the process and the the buzz that you get from getting new music together or performing at a live show and, you know, all the comments are rolling in and the likes and whatever, and it's always fun to work with other people as well. The more it's grown, the more I can feel like I'm putting a bit of pressure on myself to kind of play up to the artists around me almost. It's not so much like fans and stuff because I've never had anything but like good things from them. But it's more like within my own mind, I feel like I've got to keep like getting better and keep up with other people. You know, I see people around me that are like insanely talented musicians, you know, and it's like, wow, okay, well, (laughs) I've got this little demo. I don't even want to show you this right now because I've just, after hearing what you made this morning, I'm like, yeah, I I don't know about that. Would you say this was part of a perhaps internalized producer FOMO that you see other people doing great stuff and you feel like your work is inferior in some way? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. We mentioned imposter syndrome before. I think that's basically it. So in a nutshell, I feel like sometimes I wonder what I did to deserve to be in the position that I'm in now, you know, where I've got great friends and I've got people telling me my music's good and I've had some insane opportunities, you know, like playing shows in London and Manchester and obviously COVID ruined it in the end, but I was going to be playing a show in Toronto as well. And it was, yeah, I'm my own worst critic, but at the same time, I feel like I'm too stubborn to give up, if that makes sense. (laughs) So yeah, I don't like to be proven wrong, basically, even if it's just in my own head that I think that people are kind of looking down on what I'm doing almost, if that makes sense. But that doesn't detract from the fact that I love making music and it brought me out of a very dark place in my life anyway. But it's just in my eyes at the moment, especially in the last year since I released One to Eight State, I feel like the dynamic for me has changed slightly. And sometimes I need to take a step back and think, well, 
why am I doing this? Am I doing it to release XYZ song in time for Easter or whatever and have enough music to put out an album by X date? Or am I doing it because I like this community, I like this music? And yeah, sometimes I can be too self-critical, I think. And I kind of lose track of why I enjoy doing this sometimes. But the reality is that I do enjoy it. And it's been a very special part of the past three or four years of my life. We'll talk about this in a bit more detail later on in the pod, Jake. But now I want to talk about the Strawberry Station journey in a bit more detail. So the very first track I believe you made was a track called Bubble in 2017. It sounds very, very different to the records you put out now. Tell me a bit about this first track, any anxieties you had, and and maybe how you look back on it now. It's funny you pick up Bubble, because I think that's the oldest one on SoundCloud that I'm still willing to put out into the public sphere so to speak there were ones before it kind of like very early 2017 but that was like an outlier at a time when I was trying to learn how to make future funk so a lot of that stuff like early 2017 is no longer with us you know (laughs) R.I.P. when we got to the first album that I actually had out on a label which I think we're going to talk about in a bit I essentially had a cutoff where I had two quote unquote albums and I, you know, I use inverted comments for the term album because they were bloody awful. <laughs> and I, I basically, they, they were out there on Bandcamp. I gave people an ultimatum, say, here you go, you've got like three weeks to download them, then they're going. And so, yeah, a lot of that early music was lost. But yeah, Bubble was, <laughs> again, it's pretty poor. There's no side chaining or any real mixing, but it was the first kind of example of me trying to do something kind of original, I guess. I was following a few tutorials on how to make a synth sound a certain way. you got that kind of like bouncy synth that it's got. Yeah, I guess the reason it's still up there and the reason that I'm still happy for people to listen to it is because it was kind of like the very first step on that road to actually trying to learn what the hell I was doing. (laughs) I was using FL Studio. So yeah, it's a rudimentary, bouncy synth song. It's certainly not one I'm ever going to be releasing on tapes or records or anything, but it's there on SoundCloud for people to listen to it if they want. After this, you put out a series of singles and remixes as you found your producing feat, shall we say. Are there any singles during this period that stand out or mean a lot to you and your mental health? You know, for me, Future Funk is All and your collaboration with Kitsune are definitely favourites of mine. They're absolute bangers. But did you find this period important in honing your sound and, and finding one which reflected the identity you wanted to create a strawberry station as well? If you're referring to Ohio with Kitsune, is that the one? That's correct. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's a special song for me because Kitsune is one of my absolute closest friends. It's another one where it's a bummer that the world is in the state it is at the moment because I was going to go and visit him and my other friend Necro in California. We were going to go to conventions and stuff and try and like play some local gigs and that sort of thing. But yeah, he was the first person that I reached out to that was like, yeah, let's collaborate and I'll teach you some stuff. And I learned a lot from that process. So that song holds a special place in my heart in terms of the early stuff as well. Future Funk is all... I think that was New Year's 2019 I put that one out. I always try and challenge myself to do a new song on New Year's every year. I'll mention the deal with Future Funk 2020 in a bit, but um, <laughs> that was like my first one where I like put it out for New Year's, and it was fun, you know. It's, Future Funk's a party. It was something that I could like put on the Ox at the New Year's event that we were at and stuff, and yeah, people seem to like it. Let's talk that first debut album now, or the first one that you've got out there anyway. It was aptly named Strawberry Dreams, and you released it in 2018. 
Just tell me how the album came about, perhaps any anxieties or nerves before it was released, and then the feeling post-launch and the reaction from the listeners. Yeah, Strawberry Dreams was, I suppose, the breakthrough, if you want to call it that. That was when I finally realised that I was doing something wrong in terms of producing the stuff and wondering why people were downvoting all my crap on Reddit and thinking, <laughs> thinking, well, maybe this isn't for me. But I found ED Electric Dreams' tutorials on the subreddit teaching you how to kind of like put songs together properly and mix your drums and that sort of thing and while it's definitely the most rudimentary album in my catalogue it's the first one that truly you know stands up to the basic level of the genre in terms of its production value and once I checked out that tutorial and it's brilliant and I honestly strongly recommend anybody that's willing to get into producing in a genre to check it out because you know, he, he explains how to do, how to make your kicks, your snares, your hi-hats, your crash cymbals, whatever. And more importantly, he includes a project file so you can see what he's done. And a lot of producers will have basically built their own process around that project file. So they, they, they take what EDs learn and then they will apply their own production values. And that's how Strawberry Dreams got started. It was entirely from that tutorial, pretty much. And within like two months, I'd got the whole album's worth of songs and <laughs> people actually liked them. So it was like, whoa, okay, this is new. This is Something's happening here. So I think I put it out in September 2018. I think the album came out. Relatively little fanfare, but I was putting out some like Bandcamp promo codes on Reddit and stuff and uh, people were picking them up and I was getting a few comments saying, yeah, we like this. I like this song and oh, yeah, this is pretty groovy, which was nice, you know, <laughs> after a year of trying and failing to do this stuff. Yeah, it felt really good. And the biggest thing for me was about a month afterwards, I remember I was actually on a family holiday to Blackpool. <laughs> One of the most surreal moments in my life, because I was addicted to my phone at the time. I was constantly checking updates and notifications and whatever to see how the album was doing, see if we got any more band camp sales or whatever. And then I get a message from Alan at Corespect. And <laughs> I thought it was a joke at first. I thought somebody was winding me up. But he said, yeah, I, I actually really like the album. What I'd done is I'd made a homebrew tape of it and like posted it to again to reddit and twitter and stuff it was just a like a single tape that i was testing out the concept because i was thinking in my head oh well people like put stuff out on physical formats in this genre and i might be able to do the same thing and originally the plan was i think i've been discussing it with like jelly bonbon at the time because he'd done a similar thing when they were in university in leeds of home dubbing tapes and i just got a player from the car boot sale that recorded really well so I made like one tape as a proof of concept and Alan saw it and was like, well, do you want to release on Chorus Bet? I'll do your 75 tapes. I was like, well, really? <laughs> so uh, yeah, there I was sat in a bar in Blackpool with my parents. I believe it was a gay stag do and both of the grooms were wearing togas and challenging each other to take shots. All the while I was just sat in the corner negotiating a record deal. It was, simply put, one of the most surreal moments in my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it went through and uh, it was a success. The day that the album launched, you asked like the reaction to the launch. I was actually at a Leicester game <laughs> down in Crystal Palace watching Leicester lose 1-0. It was a crap game and uh, Leicester were rubbish and we were stuck in traffic on the way home. I didn't care because I was too busy looking at these tapes flying off the shelves. You know, we sold all 75 in about six hours, I think. So... <laughs> Yeah, it, was, uh, it really took the edge off the loss, for sure. 
Let's move on to your sophomore album, which you put out last year. It was called Yesterday's Jam. How did you evolve your sound from Strawberry Dreams? And how do you look back on this body of work and what it represented for you and your mental health? Yesterday's Jam was a cool one. So what I did with Yesterday's Jam, it was a continuation kind of producing wise from Strawberry Dreams. Like I applied similar techniques to what I'd already learned through the process of making that. A little bit more synth work in there. You can hear it in stuff like Yesterday's Jam itself and Talk of the Town as well is one I'm very proud of. But the songs on that album are remakes of songs from the first two albums that I mentioned before. So the two albums that I thought were trash and I didn't want anything to do with anymore, I thought, well, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to go back and take some of those samples from those songs that I've essentially butchered with these first two albums. I'm going to have another go and try and make them passable now. And I did what I set out to do. It's still an album that people seem to like. Get Up, Stand Up got put on my Pet Flamingo compilation they did. And we had a repress of the tapes on Gulf Audio. So yeah, people seem to like that album. I think in terms of evolution... It wasn't so much a musical evolution as like a evolution in kind of the people and the circles that I was in at the time. You know, I started talking more to folks like Mare, Mare Notilde. I was talking more to Malinade at this time as well. It was more about like physicals. I was talking to him at the time, but that was how we became friends. And we ended up organizing Groove Horizons together a few months later. But I think most importantly, the biggest friend I made during that time was Sophie, the Hesketz, who did the album art for it. So the girl holding the jam with the spoon in the mouth that drawing was done by Sophie and yeah you know we hit it off and now we are super close friends I'm talking to you two weeks after I went to see her and her fiance like out in rural Ontario where they live (laughs) it was like the culmination of that friendship that we've been building over the past two years or so not so much a musical journey that one is like a community journey if that makes sense let's talk your favorite album if you you said to me off air and i think my favorite album even though the first album definitely has its charms for me as well i definitely go back to a few of the bangers on that one which is one two eight state do you want to just tell me about the process behind this album why you are so proud of it and the reaction as well one two eight state was going back and ripping up what I'd done before in terms of production sense. I knew I was on a level, but that I kind of needed to raise that bar. So I was starting to talk around asking people like Crylo, Tokyo Wanderer, and folks like, where am I going wrong? How can I improve things? Adding my own bass lines to stuff. And and choice of samples as well is important, like how you process the samples and do more with them. And yeah, some of the songs on there, even I'm still not entirely sure how I put them together. You know, it was quite an eclectic process at the time. The first one that I did from it was Daijobu Tonight. I ended up dropping that one. Yeah, I had that song that I think I dropped the week of Groove Horizons on SoundCloud or whatever. And yeah, people loved it. And I dropped it at the show as a kind of like official reveal kind of thing. And, you know, I was looking out at the crowd at the time and like it was my first ever live performance and people were feeding off it i was like yeah okay we're onto something here and in the crowd doing the merch stand for us at groove horizons were the guys from my pet flamingo you know like uh, i think it was jay and enzo on the night really cool guys real big fish in like the future funk scene in the uk and the vaporwave scene you know they work with saint pepsi with school to Yama, like loads of big names in future funk and they came up to me after my set and they were like yeah man do you want to do a vinyl i was like yeah <laughs> it was like 
Wow, okay. It was a similar moment to like when Alan started messaging me for Chorus Bay, you know, like I'd, I'd established myself at that point within the scene and that sort of thing. But this was like another step, you know, to me, my pet flamingo are big fish. There's a holy trinity for me in like Future Fun. They are Neon City Records, Business Casual, and My Pet Flamingo. With respect to everyone else, I think they are the three biggest. And My Pet Flamingo wanted me on the roster, so I was like, yes, you know, is the Pope Catholic? Yeah, I'll do I'll do an album for you. <laughs> and the challenge then was getting the songs together because I only had like two or three, and I, I was already tentatively thinking of like a September release. This was July, so the rest of summer was just a whirlwind of like choosing songs. You know, I was constantly listening to the radio for like songs to sample and stuff i got it already and it was out again by september and yeah they flew off the shelves again i think it was the mini discs that we did so that was one of the first big mini disc releases that they did they sold out in like an hour we sold 50 copies in an hour <laughs> even i was astounded at the rate that they were going and yeah <laughs> it was a, a game like everything else i always describe the certainly the first two years in the scene as an absolute whirlwind up to the point that i released one to eight state and yeah you know the reaction to it was amazing you know I was actually getting like other producers messaging me saying oh this is cool like I really like this and oh, do you want to collaborate or whatever we had collabs on the album we had Strawberry Jelly with Jelly Bonbons that was a nice one to tick off the list finally working with him on a song we had the one with Seabard as well Hilene Gadaiski which was almost completely original like as opposed to a sampled thing he's like a multi-instrumentalist you know he's played in like the woodwind section in the band and stuff and he's super talented it's one of the most complex songs on there really chill track and then to top it all off when we got around to the vinyl release mayor kindly did a remix of mono no wali for us so it was great and again a bit like yesterday's jam it was not so much the commercial success of the album or the development as building that circle of people and like feeling more and more as part of the community at the time that really felt good and I still feel that now. I want to quickly talk about a single you released four months ago called It's Thursday My Dudes which almost has a cult following on social media so firstly it's a great track and samples one of my favourite mid noughties trance anthems out of touch by uniting nations the original sample of course coming from hall of notes can you tell the listeners about this single and the twitter account that posts the song every single thursday without fail do you happen to know the owner of that account the out of touch thursdays kind of meme just sprung up from his channel where there's a few of these like accounts now that will just post the same thing every day i can remember going back to like early facebook days and there's still a page that goes on now which is called the same face of martin clunes every day and it's just martin clunes looking at the camera with like a half grimace smile on his face <laughs> it all goes back to that yeah the out of touch thursdays page just posts the girls from lucky star dancing to out of touch every thursday to remind you that it's thursday and after a while, because everyone in the Future Funk scene was reposting it, we were like, oh, let's do a remix. And a couple of other people in the scene were doing one. I mean, I was actually working on another one with Malka Yume, which unfortunately doesn't seem to be happening. But there was that one. Uh, Fiber did a remix as well. And Kitsune came to me saying, yeah, we should do a remix of Out of Touch. And I was like, yes, OK, what have you got so far? Sent me the project file that he's got already. Oh, this is so good. Oh, yeah, we've got to do this. So, yeah, it was another one of those ones that just kind of snowballed and then all of a sudden, damn, we've got a song that's five minutes long here. That's longer than I normally do. So it was it's an epic, really, as far as like songs that we do go. And yeah, we put it out there just at about the time that the unrest and the protests were starting to happen in the USA. 
the Black Lives Matter protests. And social media was in a very weird place at that time in general. A lot of people were just refusing to post new content because of the situation and because it seemed wrong to almost take oxygen away from those protests, which were very just protests. And obviously we, we all continue to support those people that just want you know justice for the black american communities against you know police brutality and that sort of thing so we had this song ready we had the video lined up and all sorts and we were ready to go we weren't sure if it was appropriate until we started seeing tweets from out of touch thursdays every thursday (laughs) it was the usual thing but it had a message on top of it you know like blm acab and then we started seeing whoa hold on whoever runs this account is pretty invested in this stuff anyway. I messaged the person. I'm not going to get into too many details because privacy and that sort of thing, especially if they're involved in these things. But yeah, it turns out they're very invested in the BLM protests and that sort of thing. And they had no problem with us putting it out. And we had this discussion. And essentially, me and Kitsune decided, yeah, we'll put it out there. And everything that we get from Bandcamp sales in the first month, we will donate to Black Lives Matter protests. We decided on the Massachusetts bail fund in the end because a lot of my friends in the scene, a lot of producers that I know come from that part of the United States. So, you know, we could have picked any number of the bail funds because of how messed up US justice system works, basically. They can arrest you and then you've got to pay money to get out of jail. It's like a game of friggin' Monopoly. So, yeah, we chose that one because there were protests happening in Boston, just the same as any other major city in the US. And we thought, yeah, we'll do it. We'll see. We'll see how much we're expecting. Maybe we might make like 30 quid between us or whatever. As it turns out, we ended up raising like about 220 quid in the end, which doesn't sound like a lot of money. But, you know, considering where we're at as producers and what our sort of following normally is, full credit to everybody that bought a copy and got to like groove and you know, support those people that were fighting for justice in the United States. I want to touch on something now, which I know was a big deal for you when it comes to the recognition of Future Funk in the wider music industry, which was Spotify's creation of a official Future Funk playlist. Now, tracks by yourself, as well as other long-established artists were put in it. What did that mean to you as an artist, first of all, to be in that playlist and to the scene more widely? It was hugely validating. The way that things have been going within the scene, there has been a gradual move from certainly the producers that have been established long enough to be able to do it and move that user base over to start putting their music on Spotify. The dynamic changes slightly because when you get into streaming sites like that, you have to be more careful with your sampling and your clearance of samples and that sort of thing. So the music that goes up is slightly different to what people would put on SoundCloud, you know. But the flip side of that is it means it's seen as a more legitimate genre of music and you've got people putting out some pretty professional stuff nowadays. You know, I've mentioned Fiverr already, you know, him and leading, leading the guys at Montaigne and some of the music they're making is unbelievable. You know, like Fiverr, Mare, Discoholic, Barb Walters, all these guys are basically professional EDM producers at this point, <laughs> frankly. Uh, it's almost unrecognisable to what it was at one point. You know, City Pop sample and drum loop, as detractors would put it. But yeah, to have Spotify sit up and take notice of the genre and let alone to put me on it, 
it feels great. It's, yeah, validating is the way to put it, really. And the playlist has been growing and growing. I mean, I could get it up now. I could tell you exactly how many people are following it now. We've got 21,000 people follow the Future Funk official playlist now. So that's practically a mainstream Spotify playlist at this point. And the Vaporwave one's even bigger. The Vaporwave one's got something stupid like 50,000 people listening to it now. So these are just bedroom producers and, you know, internet music genres they're growing into something else at the moment i've got conflicting thoughts on kind of where future funk's going but i can't deny that being part of it is a very special thing and i'm lucky that i've been able to kind of climb my way into that bracket where it's happening now and yeah i couldn't be more grateful for everyone that supports me and continues to make this rise feel better and better I always try and break down the myth of the superstar DJ and producer on Behind the Decks, mate. As you'll know, what are some of the realities of managing a full-time job and producing that your fans and the listeners might not realise and how have they impacted your life and your mental health? I touched on it earlier that the bigger it gets, the more pressure you feel to put out new music and good new music as well. I've thought at length especially this year, because this is a year where I'm all on my own, so to speak. I'm just sat in my bedroom 90% of the time. You know, I don't have any family in Canada or whatever, and I have a limited friend group because of the the global situation. You know, I've not been able to just go down the pub and buy someone a pint and make friends. (laughs) So that was my modus operandi when I got here. The plan was to go out and get drunk with people and make friends that way. The days roll into one. I'm talking to you today. Yesterday, I got up at about half six in the morning, I think, sat down and tried to make music because I felt like I was almost obliged to sit down and do it because it had been a while. Nothing really came of it. You know, I made a few little like demos or whatever that were like snippets of songs. Then I ended up having a nap and woke up again at half past eight, had a beer and tried again. Again, nothing came of it, and I ended up like watching YouTube until four in the morning, but then <laughs> stumbled out of bed to do this interview. That's what I mean. Like the days at the moment, it's very hard to keep that schedule, especially when you work in shifts and you're trying to balance this. And I have to keep reminding myself, you know, I'm in Canada on a working holiday. I'm here to enjoy myself and like explore this country. But sometimes the twin pressures of you know making ends meet and feeling like I need to keep up appearances musically yeah it does it gets you down and uh, it's very easy to fall into that kind of like cycle of I guess depression but it's more putting pressure on yourself putting pressure on yourself that's the hard bit especially when you're surrounded by such talented people and you feel like you need to keep up with them and just finally Jake on this topic for anyone wanting to get into producing or making music what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Do it. Jump in. Get yourself a trial of a door. Get FL Studio or Ableton or whatever. Get involved in the community. That is the absolute most important thing. Don't jump in thinking you're God's gift to the world or that you know your place already because you're likely going to upset someone. You have to remember 
it's an established community at this point, and there's a lot of like people that have friend groups and stuff. And if you insult one person, you could insult ten people, you know, and quickly find yourself on the margins or whatever. Approach it with humility and a bit that you don't know everything and that you want to learn, and people will be brilliant and they will teach you those things. You know, they'll show you how to sidechain, they'll show you how to DJ. I'm the living proof. And yeah, don't be shy to use those YouTube tutorials that ED put out because they are Gucci. They are the best. They're the best tutorials. They'll get you up and running for sure. Once you're up and rolling, start asking around. Start asking to collaborate with people. Learn from other people because it's the best way to do it. Ultimately, the reason I'm still involved in this scene is not necessarily because of the music. I think a confession time is I don't actually listen to that much Future Funk nowadays. I make a lot of it, but I don't really listen to that much. I've kind of regressed back into being a classic rock pop guy at the moment. But I'm still this is my family almost now and once you're involved with these people that live all around the world and are all just invested in this scene you've got friends for life the fact that you know i've had the chance to like go out and meet people not only just down in london but here in canada as well and hopefully in the future in other places you know i've got contacts in like japan the usa and all over the place you know europe australia as well there are opportunities to really explore the world through music if you really want to take them. So don't be shy. Jump in, be friendly, be humble, and you won't regret it. We've talked about Strawberry Station. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey, Jake. So firstly, why don't you talk me about your early life in Leicester, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Jake we meet here? Well, I had an upbringing that I'm grateful for. You know, I'm really grateful to my parents. They split up before I was even old enough to remember. You know, I would have been like two starting three years old or whatever so for the whole life that I can remember you know my parents have like lived apart and remarried in my dad's case so it's like been having two families almost and I'm lucky that they've always been amicable you know and I've always been able to see my dad even though I lived with mum it was the best of both worlds because well well the, the best analogy I'd have is like you know we'd do Christmas at my mum's house and boxing day at my dad's it was like having a two-day Christmas it was awesome <laughs> but yeah you know that sort of thing never affected me and you know my parents have been brilliant to me my whole life supportive and always willing to drive me forward you know my dad in particular I'm super grateful to him for always like backing me and I can tell he's proud of what I've achieved in my life that sort of thing you know he's always been there to remind me that he's proud of me and that sort of thing the flip side of that is a lot of people this will resonate with is you feel like you're under a bit of pressure to perform for your parents growing up you know especially through primary school and secondary school you know I was top of the class kind of thing you know getting grades you know good 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 you know everything was going well I'd say it was probably like about when I finished about like year 10 11 like the end of GCSEs going into A levels college years the anxiety started to kick in you know thinking this ain't good it probably came across in how I discussed like the future funk side of things but I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform so to speak and when it got up to A-levels in particular, I was still getting A-grades and stuff throughout GCSEs. I think the warning signs were possibly there, 
it sounds dumb to people that have always struggled to get high grades, but the, the warning signs were probably there when I coasted through maths at GCSE and ended up with a B. It was the only kind of like big subject I didn't get an A in. And that made me think, well, shit, maybe I'm not God's gift to the <laughs> to the world, so to speak. Once A-levels kicked in and I thought, oh, God, well, this is my future at university on the line. I really like, I've got to get these grades or I'm not going to university. I'm not going to be... I'm going to get the job, I'm not going to get the house, whatever, you know, I'm going to just end up working in shifts or whatever. I had it set in my mind from a very young age, from my parents and whatever, what you need to do to achieve and be successful, even though a lot of it I found isn't true. Yeah, I was putting way too much pressure on myself and that on the top of like relationships and hormones and all that sort of thing was really like kicking me to the curb almost and the upshoot of that was by the time I got to my exams you know my anxieties were resulting in panic attacks on a fairly regular basis and it affected my grades in the end I ended up flunking biology exam that I was certain that I was ready for I ended up getting like barely a pass or whatever I think I pulled it up to about a d in the end but I you know, I was I was projected like A, B, B grades wise. I got B, D, D. And I was at a point there where I was like, I think I was going to study politics at the time, but I didn't have the grades for the course I wanted to get on. And, you know, my choice then was like give up or take an extra year to get into university or whatever. So I did that. Even then, I flunked the biology test again the year after which was gutting. I thought there'd been a clerical error because I got exactly the same grade that I got the year before, but no, apparently I just goofed up in the same manner. So I ended up with B, B, D in the end. I pulled my geography grade up, which was the important one. Well, that's what I went on to study at university, but it wasn't good. I carried that through to university as well. You know, I was like, the exams in particular, I'm okay with assignments and stuff where I can sit down and think, but that kind of like pressure environment of, well, it's pass or fail pretty much. I struggled and it, it took its toll. My best mate had to retake a year of his A-levels to get into university like you did, Jake. He told me that whilst no one in the year below cared that he was retaking a year, he did feel a degree of internal stigma and embarrassment that he was still there whilst all his year group had left for their respective universities. How did you deal with it at the time? And did you experience any stigma about it too? It was awkward because I had to basically go back to the school because they had a policy of not letting students back in, like mature students or whatever. You know, this was a state school. And once you had your grades and you're out the door, technically I'd passed. So it wasn't like I was required to be there. Luckily, I was on very good terms with the staff at the school. So they basically made an exception for me and I can't thank them enough. You know, the deputy principal at the time, he taught me, history and he knew that you know I was capable of going to university and succeeding there so he let me take a half year that basically pulled the threads to like get a half year done for me and yeah you know I can't thank them enough but every day I was there I was like well my friends are at university now they're having freshers and they're working towards their history the biggest clincher for me was that uh, this was the first time in my life I thought I'd really mucked up though in hindsight, it actually ended up being a blessing in disguise. I um, missed out on the last year of the previous fees before they all went up to £9,000. So yeah, rather than paying four and a half grand for a year's education, I was required to pay 9000 which was probably part of why I felt so much pressure as well. Though, to be honest, after looking at it back, my threshold for payment wasn't until like 21000 I think I went through my first year, three years of work. Like I paid £4 because of a clerical tax error. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it wasn't as bad. But at the time, 
it seemed really like bad. Like I basically failed to like meet this cut off date or whatever, which only made me feel worse and you know made me feel more anxious and awkward whenever dealing with a pressure situation. Yeah. Let's fast forward to university now, where you did get in eventually. Was this a period where you got your anxiety and panic attacks under more control? What was your experience of university like looking back alongside your mental health and your anxiety? Yes, I'd say so. When I was at university was the first time that I really started to look into it and thinking, well, something's wrong here rather than just thinking it's me, I'm the problem and starting to look into ways to manage it. It's just things like coping mechanisms, like having time to yourself uh, just to relax or whatever. Yeah, kind of coping mechanisms, that kind of thing. In terms of identifying the problem, which for me was pressure situations, or anything that could like raise a kind of fight or flight response, if that makes sense. So like being in incredibly like intense situations. I've never been one to kind of like seek conflict or whatever. But over the course of those three years, there were a couple of situations where, you know, I was a bit of a dick (laughs) or other people were dicks to me. And the tension, tensions raised and that sort of thing. And I could feel it like palpitations in your chest and all that crap. And realizing, okay, well, this is the problem then. I need to be more chill. (laughs) In terms of how to deal with the academic side of things, which again, I'd identified as a problem. Part of it was just having the freedom to choose my own course and path, really. So I'd choose modules, not necessarily because I wanted to do them, but because they were coursework based rather than exam based. And uh, true to form, the only ones that I really struggled in were modules that we had to do that had an exam. Whereas all the ones with assignments, I was acing them. I ended up with a 2-1 in the end, but that was more because the exam modules dragged me down and the assignment modules, you know, I was getting firsts in my assignments and stuff. But I went into education for a year after university and it always struck me as almost upsetting that it was treated as this kind of conveyor belt where people are basically being shipped off to university without any real preparation. They tell you to learn, but they don't teach you how to learn, so to speak. And they don't play to people's strengths. And for me, the strength was being able to sit down, read a book, study it, and apply that as an assignment or a written piece or whatever. It wasn't cramming facts and then hoping that they came up on the test. And yeah, I saw that in the students I taught. And it taught me a lot about myself being at university, about you know, how I viewed my own mental health and how I approached interactions with other people. It wasn't so much that I wanted to change my personality or whatever, but it was more how I approached situations and especially pressure situations. It's not that I can't cope with them, but it's just they were happening on far too much of a regular basis for me to be happy with it. And yeah, you know, I still have anxieties and I will still get the occasional panic attack in certain situations, but I've been able to learn a lot about how I personally cope. And I think for anybody else that faces that sort of mental health issue, it's important that you are able to not feel stigmatized for having them. And, you know, you should be comfortable in letting at the very least, you know, people close to you know that you have these problems and learning yourself how to cope. Nobody will be able to tell you how exactly you can deal with them except yourself because everybody's wired differently you know it's the joy of the human condition 
is that everybody is different and what works for one person might not work for somebody else. You know, you might have different triggers depending on how your anxiety has got started off. For me, I found that being on transport, especially in a car as a passenger, can be a trigger for panic attacks for me. So sometimes I will just make people aware of that if they're like driving me somewhere or something and saying, well, A, can I ride shotgun? Not because I, t- <laughs> not because I just want to want to sit at the front or whatever, but it's more so like I can just nudge the driver. It's like, can we have five minutes? You know, need some fresh air or whatever. Or avoiding situations where it's going to get to me, so to speak. At an absolute base level, I'd say it comes down to, again, my personality and wanting to feel like I have some control on the situation, you know? It's the unknown. It's feeling like I'm not in control of my own destiny. And that's the problem. And going back to those exams again, even though I obviously was my own <laughs> my own destiny, you know, I was the one with the pen or whatever, it didn't feel like I was being expressive in those situations. It felt more like I was following somebody else's rules sounds a bit smug but (laughs) but uh that's just it I've always been a person that wants to be not so much in control of other people but in control of my own circle and approach to things you know always said the end game for me one day will be to own my own business because at least then I'll be my own boss you know I won't be working for somebody else or working to their schedule or whatever and uh university was a big part of learning that about myself I guess changing a few of my life's priorities at the time they've continued to change my outlook on the world and stuff has changed a lot and largely because of my struggles with mental health and the way that it's gone but it's been an interesting journey for sure and I'm in a better place than I was back then two other things which you've said you struggle with Jake is isolation and imposter syndrome as we've mentioned earlier on in the pod let's define both the listeners so why don't you tell me how they affect you in your day-to-day life and how they've manifested? I guess I'll start with the isolation side of it. So I've hinted a few times already that I'm not living in good old England at the moment. I'm (laughs) currently in Canada. So that was part of that reassessment of my life and what I wanted to do with myself. You know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 27 now. I'm 28 at the end of the next month. So I thought, live while you're young. I'm going to go and do this working holiday in Canada. Been brilliant. Can't fault it you know I've had some amazing experiences already and I'm not even halfway through yet but at the same time it's been both a blessing and a curse but it's been absolutely rotten timing to come out here just as a global bloody pandemic the biggest one since the 1920s starts so a lot of my plans have kind of gone the way of the dodo so to speak spent a lot of the last four or five months just sat at home noodling trying to make music and not really getting anywhere there's been a few moments of lucidity that have been absolutely beautiful like I managed to take a trip out to Niagara Falls just when we had a bit of a thaw in the lockdown so got to see one of my big bucket list things and recently I traveled out like I mentioned to meet Soph and Zeph who can't thank enough they've been wonderful to me so good and so welcoming in the circumstances and really appreciative of them but yeah, it's uh, it does kind of blow at times being on your own. Lockdown kicked in around kind of I believe I was still living in London, Ontario, which was my first port of call. Lockdown kicked in at about the time that I was like having my first kind of like shaky moments of the trip because I was struggling to find work and hemorrhaging money pretty quickly. And then on top of that, everything starts to shut down and I was left with 
a gamble to take, so to speak. It was either stay in London, Ontario, and spend three or four months looking for a job after which my money would run out and I'd have to come home or gamble on moving to Toronto while I still could because I had no idea how serious lockdown was going to get and potentially have two months to find a job before I ran out of money because of the higher cost of living here. And I did it and no regrets. I found the job within, I was worried, don't get me wrong. I was really worried, especially the amount of money that I was spending that first month. But I found the job and still working it now. And the fact that I'm still sat here talking to you in late October proves that, you know, I survived that one. But summer itself was pretty depressing, really. The homesickness starts to bite. And (laughs) I'm not in the slightest bit envious of you guys back in the UK right now because of the way that lockdown's going over there and the response to coronavirus. I'm truly grateful. It's not been brilliant. And obviously, we've gone back into our own second wave now. But the way that Canada's dealt with it, has been pretty admirable on in the global sense of things. So I'm grateful to be in a country that took it seriously in the first place and has nipped it in the bud to a certain extent compared to other places. But that doesn't detract from the fact that I miss and I'm worried for my family. You know, I've got my grandparents back home, both of which are in their 80s now. They're getting on a bit. And I was used to seeing them on a weekly basis, so I, I miss them now. And every time I hear about them, it's like hot in the mouth. It's like, oh, God, I hope they're both okay, you know. My dad's 60 now. I missed his 60th birthday, and he won't let me live that down at all. <laughs> I owe him one when I get back, apparently. I've got to buy him God knows how many pints to make up for that. But he's not in the best health himself. He's a fat git, and <laughs> it's a, he drives up and down the country. He works about 45 He's not going to thank me for saying that because I guarantee he's going to listen to this podcast. (laughs) I love you, Dad. But he works himself to the bone. He works probably 40, 45 hours a week driving up and down the country. You know, he's up and down. He's in Scotland. He's down in London all the time making deliveries in his van. And I worry for him because, you know, if he gets corona, he's not in the, he's in a bracket that's going to really suffer from it. And, you know, I'm grateful that until now he's been fine. But, you know, I worry every day for, you know, the more vulnerable members of my family family and friends groups back home like how they'll cope if they get the illness and there's not a job I can do about it living here so yeah I get homesick all the time it's a scary time and I'm just sat here on my own mostly looking in on the situation back home again there's not much I could do if I was there anyway and somebody that I knew caught it but it does drag you down like knowing there's this looming risk hanging over everyone that you know and love and yeah you know I can be as selfish as I want right now and say well this virus has affected me personally because I had all these fun plans you know I was going to catch trains out to the Rockies and visit Halifax and see the Maritimes and go and see the Northern Lights or whatever up in the Yukon but the reality is it's not about me And as bummed out as I get from being set at home all the time, my true worries from this isolation that I feel are they're my family back home. And if they're listening to this, I just want them to remind them, you know, I do miss you all and I want you all to stay safe and, you know, stay healthy. And, you know, when this is all over, I will come back and we can hug and kiss and whatever. And I'll make you a cup of tea. I'll buy you those 20 odd pints that I owe your dad. Just stay sensible and don't take any risks. 
And just as a final question on this, Jake, given what you've gone through, if you could go back and speak to that 16, 17 year old Jake who was struggling with his anxiety, having to retake his A-levels, what do you think you would say to him knowing what you do now? It's not as important as they say it is. Ultimately, the important thing, and it's something that I have to remind myself sat here, is to be happy in yourself and be able to express yourself. And I'm grateful that the scene that I'm part of has given me that chance to be myself, so to speak, and take risks almost, but managed risks that I'm in control of like the move to Canada largely came about because on top of wanting to live in this country, I know a lot of people musically in North America and I wanted to visit them. And luckily I have been able to make some of those connections in real life now. Obviously not as many as I'd have liked to, but it has been good. I'd remind my younger self that the pressure that you think is put on you is internal largely. And you are your own worst enemy when it comes to mental health. And yeah, it's important to know that you can talk to people around you rather than bottling it up and ultimately working yourself into those situations. So I don't want to end on a downer because I've been so grateful to the people around me, especially in recent months and stuff, dragging me up when I've been feeling down a bit and reminding me that it's not all bad. Because there are a lot of things that can weigh you down and it's very easy to let them balloon and kind of like snowball into stuff that will really affect you both mentally and physically. So 16 year old me, just keep plodding along, keep playing music. You and Mala in the band, you'll both go on to do good things musically one day, I promise. <laughs> yeah, just keep just keep doing it. Do what you want to do with your life. Our final topic of conversation, Jake, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, you can include or exclude circumstances, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? It's better than it was a few weeks ago, I think. I mentioned the trip out to see Sophie and Zeph. Amazing people, really amazing. And they really dragged me up from a low point within the Canadian kind of trip. My mental health is good at the moment. Everybody has ups and downs. They have good days, bad days, whatever. But I've been able to take stock recently. And I'm in a position now where, you know, I think I know where I'm going in the next couple of months and sort of thing, rather than a lot of it being up in the air. But yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. We've talked about your anxiety and your imposter syndrome. We've talked about some of the triggers that you've had as well. So I want to talk now about when was the first time you had a conversation with someone about your mental health? What age were you? Who was it with? And what was the reaction like when you had it, both from them and from yourself? Did you feel like it was a really significant moment or something very normalised? I struggle to put my finger on when I've had conversations with people because, again, I'm guilty of internalising it a lot. I've never really spoken that much with my family about it. Although I think when I started having my panic attacks, especially my dad in particular, you know, was aware of it and stuff. I remember having a panic attack in the car on the way to his house. I think we weren't far from home. He basically pulled the car over for me. I was like, Dad, I need some air. Can I just walk to your house from here? I was like, yeah, fine. I think we had a discussion about it after then. And 
that it kind of delved into kind of where I was feeling all these pressures and stuff. I think that might have been a bit of like a oh crap moment for him, realizing, oh God, we're putting all this pressure on our son, that sort of thing. Not that I ever noticed a change in how he approached these things, but I always felt like he was willing to learn like these things. I've seen my dad kind of develop a lot of understanding about a lot of things in life, you know, like, oh God, we could be here for hours if I talked about like his journey, my God. Let's just say from his, to see him go from how he was when I was growing up to one of the main men at an Indian wedding, dancing around in full traditional dress. That was a journey. For the pictures say it for themselves. It was incredible. But that's a tangent. But yeah, I'd, I'd say my dad, I probably had the odd conversation with some friends at university. A shout out to my friend Tom, Furious T. <laughs> We've discussed mental health before, me and him. We were very close at university. We're still good friends now, although obviously we're apart at the moment. And yeah, we've never been shy to like discuss mental health together. But in terms of opening up, I guess this would be the first time I've ever done it on a truly open basis publicly, I suppose. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? <laughs> yeah, we'll go through the ones that I tried but didn't work before. There's this one that they give you. It- probably works for some people but not for me was when you feel like your anxieties are rising and you're like on the cusp of a panic attack or whatever they ask you to like internally count on a scale between one and ten how bad am i feeling right now it's like oh i guess i i I guess i'm at a five right now you know it's like then you're, you're mentally thinking about the fact that you're having a panic attack it just makes it worse it just makes it worse it's like positive feedback you know then it's like oh i'm at five now oh no no six six seven you know and then all of a sudden you're bloody hyperventilating and you're having to step outside and get some fresh air or whatever in terms of managing it actual treatment of it at the time you know i've never taken any meds or anything for it but i would say fresh air absolutely vital getting out and about and getting out somewhere nice as well not just a trip around the block go even if it takes you like a five ten minute drive to get some get to a park or something go to somewhere with open space and green space for me being out in nature is very important and that's partially why i feel so good at the moment after the trip to see soph and zeph because we were out in the country i look outside at the moment what have i got i've got the construction works a busy main road and a condo being built (laughs) It's a pretty depressing sight, but, you know, I got out to the countryside, we went went out to the woods, we went to the water, you know, we were playing with the dogs and the cats and whatever, and it just makes me feel whole again, so to speak. Is that Atomic Kitten? <laughs> yeah, that's Atomic Kitten. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> yeah, no, no for, for me, it's the outdoors. It's having time to breathe. Going on from that, and I might as well kind of mention it now, feeling the snowball of social media and the way that that can build up and the pressure you put on yourself to be active in it and stuff. I'm actually, by the time this podcast goes out, it it might have already happened, but I'm planning to take a kind of mini hiatus for the rest of the year. I've got a new album coming out, might as well plug it now. (laughs) We've got an album called Smoothie Sounds coming out on the 6th of November. And then I'm going to do promo for that and the other single that I've got out at the minute with Core Respect for like a week. And then 13th of November, Friday the 13th, Unlucky for Future Funk. (laughs) I'm going to be taking a bit of a break for the rest of the year. I've got a Patreon at the moment, and I've got some brilliant people around me there. I'm going to focus on those, withdraw from the scene for a bit, because I feel like feeling that invested in social media isn't healthy. 
and everyone needs a break now and again. And I have to acknowledge that I felt too much pressure on myself to be part of that constantly and constantly checking my phone, checking Twitter, checking Discord, checking Bandcamp to see if we've had any more sales or whatever. And yeah, that drags me down as well. So yeah, I think taking breaks from social media, hopefully I'll come back refreshed like in 2021. The plan is to take the rest of 2020 off because it's a pretty sucky year anyway. Let's forget 2020 and <laughs> start again in 2021. I'll probably come back with another like New Year's song like I normally do. Future Funk 2020 went down pretty well this year. It was ended up on that Spotify playlist we mentioned earlier. But fresh air and social media breaks, big ones for me. And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or just going through a poor period of mental health, whether that be men or women? Talking. Talking to each other. It's so hard when you internalize it to make that admission that you've got a problem. But as soon as you break through that barrier with somebody and you acknowledge you've probably both got your internal demons, so to speak, once you start talking and you can be open with somebody about those things, then you can really start to get to know a person better. And you end up with not just a friend, but an ally, almost like a somebody who gets it i've got lots of friends online i know i've just mentioned like the online maelstrom is the best way to describe it of the more general social media but the closer friends that i've got and that i talk to on a daily basis brilliant and you know i try to be supportive for them as well even if i'm just a face on a screen or a video call or whatever it's a cliche but i'm always open to talk with those people that i know you've got to be brave and admit to people that you're close to that you need a chat but once you have that chat it's good for the soul almost toxic masculinity is a topic we talk about a lot on this podcast jake at the end of every episode and it's one i hope will in future pods toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and positive masculinity will just be described as masculinity what would you define as toxic masculinity and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners Toxic masculinity is a very interesting one for me because I almost describe myself as a bit of a social chameleon almost because I mix with different groups that are so diametrically opposed. On the one hand, I've got all these future funk people, you know, it's like it's very welcoming, open, LGBT friendly, you know, people from all walks of life and all around the world, different cultures, classes, sexual orientations, gender identifications, that sort of thing. You know, it's a very liberal and open thing. On the other hand, you know, back home, like, if I want to be, I can be one of the lads, you know, I could be down the pub after a football game or whatever. You know, I'm a, I'm a massive Leicester City fan. I travelled up and down the country to games and stuff. And, you know, I see the lad culture, as you put it, like, in close contact a lot. And, you know, I can kind of, like, brush it off almost but I guess having seen both sides of the coin and being involved in that I know which side I'd rather be on and it's the future funk guys and the welcoming people and stuff again it's like I might as well go into it and why I'm proud of my dad because he grew up in Braunston big council estate in Leicester you know I used to spend time at my grand's house there god rest his soul you know burnt out cars you know smashed glass we used to play football on the old uh on the car park opposite you know we we're dodging <laughs> dodging broken glass when we we're kicking the ball around pretending we were tony cotty or paul dickov or whatever and 
yeah, you know, he grew up in a rough part of the world, you know, and some of the people that he associates with, you know, I know they're cut from the same cloth and some of them have had pretty rough upbringings themselves, you know, and I know these people through the football and stuff. And yeah, he's definitely of a different generation, I guess I'd say. But his process that I've seen growing up, you know, I've been proud of him. I have. It's it's weird for a son to talk about being proud of their dad uh, <laughs> rather than the other way around. But I think one of the earliest ones, I'm going to kind of like give a bit of an anecdote now and I'm going to out him to a certain extent. But I pray tell guys, please hold your sticks and stones or whatever. Around probably like 2008, 2009, whatever, there was a BNP councillor in northwest Leicestershire where my dad lived. And he came around canvassing for votes. And this was at the time when the UK was refusing to grant visas to members of the Gurkhas, who were Nepalese soldiers that fought for the British army. You know, they were from Nepal. It was a hangover from kind of colonial times, whatever. But these people were so proud to fight for Britain in world wars and stuff. And even though they had no actual physical connection to the UK, they were brave noble people and they were being refused citizenship despite putting their lives on the line for the uk and my dad was disgusted by this and he was like these people are proud to be british so they deserve to be be citizens and he had this discussion on the doorstep with the bmp councillor because he'd seen in the leaflet that he didn't want these people to be british citizens or whatever based purely on their race and that was a light bulb moment for my dad that some people in these circles are not people you want to associate with and have some nasty, nasty views. And largely that had just been the result of like the upbringing, you know, like white working class backgrounds. I'm not going to go as far as to say he didn't know any better, but weren't his fault as far as I'm concerned. And he still says the odd stupid thing, but he's become so much more tolerant. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, the best example of that is that Indian wedding. So my younger brother, Daniel, married Kriya, who's Indian heritage. And yeah, he gets along with our family like a house on fire. Him and Nat bonded over their shared love of brandy, of all things. Uh, so watching those two get drunk together is a, is, is a laugh for sure. But yeah, no, you know, seeing him like absolutely just like going headfirst into this Indian wedding and just like embracing the culture and that sort of thing. That's a journey. The acceptance of that that kind of like we're all human kind of thing i'm proud of my dad and while i still see it in the football crowds so to speak but i love getting involved in it i love the banter and i love the boardiness of it all you know but there's times when it crosses the line and you just have to remember we're all human and i could go on a bit more about the football crowds and now like the folks that i see on the terraces at leicester now are brilliant we've got v's and sherry that come to the games with us sherry's caribbean lady from wolverhampton <laughs> we, we we have more arguments with her about her shared loyalties with wolves and leicester than we do about anything else there's guys on the row behind us they're all muslim guys and i remember when we signed islam slimani and we had christian fuchs in the team as well we were having banter about like the bloody crusades and stuff about like christian versus islam kind of thing It's the nature of the banter, if you like, and the way that it's changed. You know, if you went onto that same terrace 10, 20 years ago, it would have been a way different place. And I still hear some people that make disgusting comments at the football about people based on race, sexuality, whatever. But 
in the most part, whereas 10, 20 years ago, you would have had everybody go, yay, well done, mate, yay. You know, now you just get people tutting and like not wanting anything to do with them, you know? They are the minority now, and the world's a better place for it because it's more accepting. And coming back round to toxic masculinity, I do see a change in it. And I think through my dad's own journey and what I see on the football terraces, that's probably the best proof that I have that things are changing and mindsets and viewpoints are changing. And just finally, Jake, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think touching on what I said earlier, it's about showing that you're open to have that conversation with each other, not necessarily as the person that wants to get it off their chest, but in terms of being a good mate to someone and showing that you're comfortable talking about that with them. I couldn't put my finger on how you would initiate something like that without making it seem a little bit awkward, so to speak. But I think I mentioned Tom earlier. It's just one of those things where you get close enough to somebody and once you know, you know. You know you can talk to them about that sort of thing. It just kind of comes out sometimes. You know, you'll just blurt it out. It's like, I'm not feeling so good today. It's like, uh, why not, mate? It's like, I'm just just feeling down, you know, it's that sort of thing. It can just start like that. And eventually, you know, you can, if you're comfortable around somebody, you can delve into it. I'd say don't keep it bottled up. If you know somebody that you think you could have that conversation with, tell them, I guess, as hard as it may be. Just say, mate, can we have a chat or whatever. Don't feel like you're on your own. I internalize stuff way too much. And I think a lot of other people do as well. I think British culture in particular is a bit of a tinderbox when it comes to, again, as you said, the toxic masculinity and keeping up appearances. I think it goes way back. It's more ingrained than that. It's the whole stiff upper lip thing and keep calm and carry on. I don't think that was ever a looking back when that became a kind of like meme gift thing. I think that was unhealthy at the time. I think it's about feeling like you can have that conversation and that you're not alone, so to speak. And it can be very hard to break out of that, especially when you feel isolated, a bit like I have done recently. I'm very grateful for my online friends that I've been able to have that kind of outlet. But ultimately, even if it's an online pal, try and have a chat. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Decks. Hope you guys have all enjoyed it. I want to say a big thank you to Jake, a.k.a. Strawberry Station, for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go Behind the Decks with him. My favourite track of 128 State called Mono No Aware will play us out and I'll put some links to where you can follow Strawberry Station on social media and stream his music in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks and remember, it's always okay to vent. Oh, 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 oh,